Well, 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 Galatians. Last year, you might recall, we looked at the crazy Corinthians. And this year, we're going to look at the foolish Galatians at some length. Like all of Paul, Galatians has the power to get under our skin. So as we read this, be expect or expect to be upset, expect to be needled, expect to be confronted. And when that happens, ask yourself, why am I upset? Why am I needled? Why am I confronted? What is it in me that finds this message so hard? We're going to do it over six weeks. Uh, there are the six weeks, starting today and then uh, rolling through until early August. Not that hard to divide Galatians up in some ways, because it is really quite a seamless sort of argument. I mean, lots of Paul's letters really are. Um, but the guts of it is, as you probably discerned from the songs and so forth this morning, God is faithful. And in Christ, and especially his faithfulness unto death, God has done everything needed to set up one global community that bears his name and lives the life of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so coming into this community is incredibly simple, but it's also costly. It's all-encompassing, as we heard in the Gospel. It involves entrusting ourselves to what Jesus has done through his faithful life and death. And that means, and this is where the letter gets its leaping-off point, no one has the right to set up checkpoints to decide who's in or who's out, especially not checkpoints based on the Jewish law, but I think on any kind of set of rules. Rather, if we put our faith in Jesus, we're in. And abandoning ourselves to him will totally change our lives, the simplest and the costliest thing that can be done. That is my summary of the book of Galatians. So read it. I think there were even A3 copies of it with a pretty diagram on the front. Take it home. Use your highlighters. Note the things that echo. Cross bits out. Put exclamation marks in the very tiny margins. Uh, and generally, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest it. I just want to point out a few things this morning to look out for as you read it. And the first of these is this, Paul and his tone. It is a very cantankerous letter. It is full of angry language. Let God's curse be upon them, says Paul quite early on in the piece. You foolish Galatians, he says, who has bewitched you? That's a strong language. And then most dramatically of all, maybe, uh, towards the end when he's been talking about the people who want to circumcise the new believers, he says, I just wish they would castrate themselves. Um, which is pretty strong language in anyone's book. A few things to say about this. Firstly, this language is partly a question of genre. There's been a lot of scholarship on what genre of epistle Galatians falls into. And there is apparently a rebuke request form of letter in which the writer would kind of rebuke the audience in order to get them to respond in a certain way. So we're quite shocked by this call to castration. Um, but they might have taken it a bit more in their stride than we do. Maybe. <laughs> the second thing is that this really is a genuine glimpse into Paul's character, I think. And we shouldn't pretend otherwise. Paul is a passionate, fierce, 
hot-headed sort of a guy. Who remembers the 1970s? Not many of us. Yes, one or two. Some of you might recall, but probably you won't because it's pretty obscure. Um, who, who knew the music of Bruce Coburn? Anyone? Surely. Oh, Gavin's nodding. Only Gavin. Oh, even Matthew over there. There you go. Um, Bruce Coburn is a very obscure song that describes Paul like this. Uptight lawyer on Damascus Road becomes a nexus where the light explodes. I think that's it. Paul never ceases to be an uptight lawyer who meets Jesus on the Damascus Road, and from that, God uses him in powerful ways to bring the light all over the place. And the uptight lawyer is a work in progress, he's being sanctified, he's being changed and grown and all the rest of it. Um, becoming more like Christ takes a long time. <laughs> There's a lot of refining that happens. And I think that's great, because it reminds us that God uses all of us, not just the sweet, docile, um, saintly types. You might feel, you probably feel, that God can't use you. In fact, I overheard a conversation just before the service began, uh, in which two members of our esteemed congregation, who shall remain nameless, were saying, are talking about a podcast that they have been working on, or being asked to work on, and both of them said, yeah, when they interviewed me, I thought I was pretty rubbish, actually. I said nothing that was very good. It was really pretty hopeless. Um, you know, da, da, da. It's like, we always, all the time, feel like we're not good enough. Hey, we always, well, most of us, if we don't, we've got narcissistic personality disorder, and that's another problem. But actually, that's where the light gets in. That's what God uses, the frailty, the brokenness, the vulnerability, the shame. Perfection not required. So Paul is passionate, fierce, and hot-headed. But he's passionate about what's important. And he's absolutely clear that there's a lot on the line here. I think when we kind of read this cantankerous language and get a bit upset by it, it's easy for us to think, oh yeah, this is just a minor intra-Jewish dispute on trivial in-house stuff. Paul, would you just chill out, please? But Paul would say, uh-uh, this goes right to the core of what God is doing in the history of the world. This is something worth getting upset about or standing firm on. And I think that's the second thing to look out for as we read this letter. What are the stakes? Hint, the stakes are high. It is worth asking, and Matthew Bartlett asked this in an essay he wrote actually, which was very helpful, so thank you. What would have happened if Paul had just given up this argument? it's actually really hard to see the Jesus movement going anywhere. I mean, in the grace of God, sure, it probably would have, would have, would have. Um, but if Paul had just given up here, it sort of feels like the missionary impetus behind the Jesus movement probably would have conked out. If Cephas, Peter, and the other apostles had said, you know what, we will require new converts to obey Torah, then... I think a lot of people would have looked on and gone, no, we're not getting into this. It's kind of nice, but no. There were, if you recall, already a lot of God-fearing Greeks, as they're called in the New Testament, throughout the Mediterranean. People who are sympathetic to Judaism, but unwilling to go the whole hog and get circumcised. And we see, you know, quite often bump into these people in the Book of Acts, and even in, in like the Gospels, the centurions and stuff who, who respect Jewish way. But the extraordinary explosion in the Christian faith, which sees you know 50% of the Roman Empire professing faith by 350 AD or whatever Rodden Stark says, these numbers 
only came about, I think, because Paul clung to the revolutionary announcement of freedom that he experienced in Christ. The free grace of God is available to everyone through the free offering of Jesus the Messiah, and it comes without conditions, except that condition to give your life totally to him, the small one. But this is Paul's experience, I think. From his own experience, he grasped this with utter clarity. The gospel is not just a nice set of ideas. It is a power. It is a liberating power. And it's God's power. It's God's initiative. And to require Torah observance for these new converts would be like putting them back into the chains from which he and Peter and the rest of the apostles knew themselves to have been freed by the resurrection of Jesus. It's actually quite cool. We had that in the second reading. He uses that metaphor of being, of locking, of, of the law locking up people's freedom in chapter 3, verses 22 and, and 23. And the freedom that Christ's, or that Jesus' resurrection brings is therefore a freedom partly from the chains of legalism of the law. Paul sees with fierce clarity that God wants us to be free, to live in the freedom of the Spirit. That is the center of his life, and he is not going to back down for any money. And so I guess for us, it's worth asking ourselves, do we share that same conviction about the centrality of Jesus' death and resurrection? Is there anything we are willing to stand on with such conviction? Or are we, have we maybe become so easy-ozy that we're sort of standing more on a kind of melting iceberg of conviction than on the solid rock of faith in Jesus? Is the gospel for us a set of nice ideas, or is it a power? Galatians challenges us to stand up, stand up for Jesus, as an old hymn puts it and the radical freedom that he brings. So the third thing, just quickly look at a couple of sort of slightly disputed terms that have been um, litigated in a lot of the scholarship of the last 50 years, 40 or 50 years, that I think really are worth grappling with and do make a difference in the way that Galatians is read. And they are these, briefly, faith in Christ, faith of Christ, justification, and then a third one that I'm actually not going to talk about, though it's probably the biggest, um, works of the law. Firstly, justified, justification. This, you will recall, is the one of the cornerstones of Reformation theology, that Luther, casting around thinking, how can I be in the right with God? How can I find a gracious God? Where can I be justified? It's too hard, all this stuff that I have to do as a Christian. And he discovers the radical freedom that he is in fact justified, not by anything he does, but by God, by his faith in God. Luther understood this in quite a legal kind of a sense, that he was justified before God. There's a courtroom verdict on him that says, you are in the right. Recent scholarship has kind of emphasized, sometimes a bit controversially, depending on who you talk to, that Paul's vision is much bigger than a kind of narrow individualistic verdict upon each one of us before 
the throne of God. Rather, the Greek language, drawing on the Hebrew behind it, points to the whole sweep of what God is doing in history. And our English words slightly distort this. The Greek word is dikaiosune, and it includes both the sort of Anglo-Saxon type words rectify, righteous, righteousness, and the kind of Latin words justify, just, and justice. It can be, the, the, the cognate words can be translated either of those two ways. Think about that song that we just sung. Um, how'd it go? Uh, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Quite interesting to think, well, that could also be Jesus' blood and justice. It's not just this abstract moral quality. Um, it's a dynamic condition of being morally right, but also within that just. It's sort of a bit of a rich term than maybe our English words suggest. And so Richard Hayes, New Testament scholar, says this, that when Paul talks about... Um, oh, did you see that one? Oh, sorry. There we go. Sorry, Zoom. Hi, Zoom. Um, that, that this dikaiosune and its cognate words has those meanings on the left and those meanings on the right. And I think the more you think about it, the more you think, oh, yeah, in English we have slightly different feelings to those two columns. But both of them are, are tied up in what, in what Paul says. And so Richard Hayes says that when Paul says that we're justified by faith, this is not merely, although it is, but it's not merely a forensic, a legal declaration that we are acquitted from guilt in God's sight, although it is, but it is also pointing to God's ultimate action of powerfully setting right all that has gone wrong. So it's kind of about us as individuals, but it's us within the whole sweep of God's desire to put the world to rights. So when Paul uses the language of justification, he has the whole sweep of salvation history in mind of a just and righteous God who makes the world in love, who grieves over the mess that humans make of this beautiful world, and who in Christ has gone to any lengths to put it right, to restore it, so that it is being and will be consummated in joyous well-being. Have that big sweep of God's scope in mind as you read Galatians. Your justification is important, but it's part of something much, much, much bigger. And if we lose the big sweep, I think we can get a little bit self-righteous along the way, maybe. So that's the second, that's the first of those terms. The second that's a bit disputed is pistis Christo is the, is the Greek, faith in Christ. There's been a lot of argument about this one. And we heard it in what Kirsty read from Galatians 2. Now the thing is, this can be translated either as faith in Christ, me putting my faith in Christ, or it can be translated as the faith of Christ, the faithfulness, same word in Greek, of Christ. Jesus faithful life and death on the cross for us. Again, that first understanding was a cornerstone of the Reformation. It's my faith that matters. I don't have to go to confession. I don't have to buy indulgences. I don't have to kneel down and kiss the Pope's ring. I just have to have faith in Christ. Amen? Amen. It's right and it's good. And it's certainly part of what Paul had in view, I think. 
But the thing about it is, think about us human beings. I think we really struggle with the simplicity of that statement, that all that we have to do is have faith in Christ. And we are so convinced of our own importance, our own agency, that over the years, even the simple statement that we just need to have faith in Christ can be turned into something which we use to try and impress other people and try and impress God even. That a bit of spiritual one-up personship can go on. Look at me. I've got faith. Aren't I clever? Aren't I pious? Aren't I righteous? I've got faith. Now there's a good case to be made that Paul has in mind the other meaning, certainly sometimes, and possibly primarily, the second meaning. We're perhaps used to reading in our Bibles, a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. That's the good classic Protestant way to read this text. But it's also translatable, a person is not justified, rectified, vindicated, by the works of the law, but by the faithfulness of Jesus, the Messiah. There's a subtle difference. And the difference is on where the emphasis lies. And that second, it's not by my act of faith that I easily get out of perspective, I easily can use to make into something I puff myself up with. But it is God's act, God's faithfulness, seen in Jesus' obedience even to death, that justifies, rectifies, vindicates, saves us. I'm not really qualified to rule on which of these two translations is better, but I am a literature scholar, and so I want everything both ways all the time. And it seems to me that Paul is enough of a poet to have both of these in mind, to be saying simultaneously, um, our vindication in the first instance is the result of God's action, God's initiative. It is the result of God's faithfulness seen in Jesus' willingness to go to the cross. That's the revolutionary thing about the gospel. God acts to liberate us from our self-referential mess, our sin. We do not save ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. The harder we try, the, digger, the bigger holes we dig. So that's there, but it is also there that we make this truth our own by the simple act of faith in Christ. A person is justified by faith in, trust in, the faithfulness of Jesus. That is Paul's gospel, I think, both at once, but with the faithfulness of Jesus as the primary thing. And so bear that in mind as you read Galatians. And note how totally radical and totally confronting it is. Because as humans, we love to be in control. We love to be able to point to our own achievement and our own initiative. And there's a sense in which the gospel takes all that away and says, doesn't save you. You are justified only by the faithfulness of Jesus. So what am I, what are you tempted to see as the basis of your justification? Your reasons to show that you're a person who's got it all together. Your education your impeccable political opinions, your wokeness, your track record on environmentalism, your time spent in intentional community, your piety, your command of scripture, all good things, no doubt. 
But hard though it is for us to hear it, for all of us, Paul tells us that those things are skirting around the edges. Our fundamental problem is our entrapments by the powers of the age that hold us in bondage to ourselves and our sin. And only the faithfulness of Jesus can unlock those chains and unlock the hold the powers have over us. Only the pure, simple gospel, offensive to our high-achieving ears, can save us. That is the letter to the Galatians. Read it. May its simplicity challenge and change us. May we discover afresh what Paul says, so that each of us can say, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but he who lives in me, because he loved me and gave himself for me, for he is faithful. Thank <laughs> you.